Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music, and man, the day has finally come. The one and only Grace Weinstein, back, back, co-creator of Hell and High Water, she's back. Grace, where have you been? We've missed you so much. I know we thought I was on a bender, and it is true, I did hit up Las Vegas, but not for the reason you think. I was off hooping in the NBA Summer League, obviously. That's where we all knew I was going to be. Oh, God. Okay, well, I look forward to being drafted and then rejecting the draft when any team other than the Boston Celtics put you on. I do like the fact that LeBron James the other day said that the reason he doesn't like Celtics fans is because they're racist as fuck. Don't even comment. Don't even comment. You're back. my mouth shut. You're back just in time, just in time for our special two-part podcast, the special two-part episode with the one and only Liz Smith, the Democratic communications savant, the Svengali to Pete Buttigieg, and now the author of this new, crackling new book that has all of the political world talking. Any given Tuesday, a political love story. It's her memoir. It seems a little early for someone to write a memoir like Liz Smith, but what do you know? What do you know about Liz Smith and uh, and about this book? What are you hearing, Grace, on the street? I remember her being so sharp in the way that she was quick and people couldn't keep up with her, and sharp in the way that she would fucking skewer you against a wall if you were not prepared to handle her. That's what I remember from the 2020 campaign where she was with Pete Buttigieg, uh, kind of like in awe, in a in a reverence, in a little bit of fear kind of way. So I'm excited to hear about this book. That description captures her exactly. And this book really conveys exactly what she's like. This is a book that sounds like it's written by her, which is the highest compliment I can give <laughs> to a memoir. And I will say, you know, she just has all of her flavor, all of her her style, all of her. Uh, she's And she's scrappy and she's tough and she's smart and she's profane. And she also knows a lot of things about herself and why she's a political junkie. And here's a little piece of sound from the interview that kind of where I asked her, you know, like why she's in politics and what makes her well suited to this kind of life on the campaign trail. This is what she said. I am a competitive motherfucker. Like I will spend all night at the blackjack table, all night playing chess. I grew up playing chess. I played sports. I was a runner. I had a twin brother. I think what anyone who has a twin can tell you that it really gives you a, a very competitive side to you because you're always competing against each other and you, everyone's sort of comparing you to each other. So I do have that competitive gene and I do have that adrenaline gene where I like crises. I like running into metaphorical burning buildings. I like the roller coaster of it because it makes life a lot more interesting. And it just so happens that these two things that two parts of my personality, two things I care about sort of merge into one with campaigns. So it's like a crisis junkie, adrenaline addict, foul mouthed, and uh, a little bit of a drama queen. It's like basically the woman, a woman right up your alley, Grace. So up my alley, and I rarely say these days, like after I encounter someone, oh, you totally belong in politics because there's all these cowards out there who should have no business involving themselves in politics. But she definitely belongs in politics. I say that with confidence. Totally. And, you know, the book is full of behind the scenes stories and hot goss on all these Democratic candidates and, and office holders who are on her resume. You know, she starts out in her career very young working for like Claire McCaskill and Terry McAuliffe and Ted Strickland and all these kind of like, you know, governors of big states. And then she moves to New York and she works 
in succession, she, she has relationships with and works for Bill de Blasio, Elliot Spitzer, and Andrew Cuomo. Now, that is an un- unholy trinity, in my opinion. And I ask you, can you imagine, Grace? I mean, you've had me for a boss, and that's like bad enough. But can you imagine working for not just one of those guys, but all three of them at one point in your career? No, I would be woofing on some farm in some southern Italy at this point. You would absolutely never be hearing from me ever again. <laughs> Well, I will say, in addition to having worked for all three of those gentlemen, she also, in fact, had a romantic relationship, as people may remember, with Elliot Spitzer after he was run out of the governorship uh, because of his prostitution scandal. That became like a cause celeb for a little while, caused her to get fired by Bill de Blasio in one of the most kind of incredible, ridiculous uh, acts that I've of many ridiculous acts by Bill de Blasio firing Liz Smith over the fact that she had a consensual relationship with Elliot Spitzer might be right at the top. You're going to hear about that in part one of the podcast today, along with her stories about getting into politics and all of that and her assessment of the one six committee and its work so far and what we might have to look forward to on Thursday night when they have their big primetime hearing They're back in primetime again. And then in part two, we have Liz talking about her relationships with Pete Buttigieg, with Andrew Cuomo. Look, it's still not that long ago that Andrew Cuomo got hounded out of government over these terrible Me Too scandals he was involved in. Grace, I know you're going to want, you want the inside story of that. Desperately. I feel like we just have not even unearthed the upper crust of how piece of shitty this human being was. Well, if you if you want to hear piece of shit, you're gonna enjoy reading this book and hearing <laughs> this podcast because Liz Liz is you know she she once really liked Andrew Cuomo, but boy does he treat his staff badly, and is there a lot of collateral damage left in the wake of that scandal? So listen, without further ado, we should get on with this here. Part one of the podcast dropping right now. Part two is dropping tomorrow. It's a special two part episode. Liz Smith, the author of Any Given Tuesday: A Political Love Story, a woman who knows. I would say almost as much as you, Grace Weinstein, almost as much as you about the place where politics and personality collide (laughs) in the realm of Hell and High Water. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us. And this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. I would say Liz Cheney takes everything pretty seriously. <laughs> like, well, whether you love her or hate her, she takes everything seriously. We're here with Liz Smith, who's got this great new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. It's the Democratic political strategist communication savant memoir of the year. There won't be a more important memoir by a Democratic uh, you know, communication strategist than this. I, I'll take memoir of the century. Memoir of the century. Well, yeah, we're, yeah, we're only 22. There. We're only, what, 21 and a half years into it. So that's fine. That seems like a reasonable yeah, plan. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I don't think I've seen you in person since we were on Bill Maher together, like the Friday before the election in 2020. Yes. And remember, I told you I had a book deadline coming up and you were like, then what the hell are you doing here? Good question. Good question. As you know, writing a book is a very onerous task. So I was basically doing anything I could to avoid meeting deadlines, although I did meet my deadlines. But that was last time I saw you. 
I'm super impressed that you met your headline. I regard writing books as like walking through a burning building in a suit soaked with gasoline. It's like the worst possible thing you could do yourself. So no one told me that when <laughs> I got, was get, going into this and I had a rule with my friends and family, like we can talk about anything, any unpleasant thing in life. You cannot ask me a single question about my book because right. it's so much anxiety and you're just sitting there at your computer, staring at this blank page, imagining yourself being a failure, wondering how are you going to fill all this stuff out? And of course I was just able to, but it was physically painful. It was emotionally painful. It was a lot, but you know, I got through it. I got through that, uh, that fire with suit dowsing. Yeah, the whole, that, the whole, that whole bad thing I just said. This is going to be a two-part podcast because there's a lot to talk about both in what's going on in the world and we're going to talk about the book. But I do want to get back to Liz Cheney because like, we played that sound yeah. and we just wandered away from it because it was so so delightful to see you. The 1-6 committee, these hearings have happened. People had various expectations for what they were going to yield. And I don't know, everybody, I think even people who were like me, hopeful that they would break through with the American people, but not optimistic because of the way the world is and, and previous examples of Democrats fucking up the impeachment hearings and not really ever breaking through. Do you agree with the widespread assessment that they have broken through? And if so, why? What have they done better on, in this hearing? I have my own ideas, but I'm curious about yours as a communications specialist. Yeah. So I like how you described your feeling toward it. I was definitely skeptical going into it after seeing the impeachment hearings, especially the first impeachment hearing, which I thought was incredibly ineffective. And to be honest with you, I don't think that Adam Schiff is someone that we should be putting out there on these issues. And I think he sort of discredited himself in some of the hearings there. And they felt like it was Congress people just going to give diatribes. It felt very partisan and thin on facts. This one feels different to me. It feels different from the first one. It feels different from the second one to me. I think part of it is because you do have Liz Cheney involved. And man, she you're right. She is dead serious at all times. But it takes away sort of the partisanship that we had with the, the first two committees. And what I like, too, is that they've been heavier on evidence, you know, showing videos from the day that we haven't seen before, bringing forward witnesses that we haven't heard from before versus just telling us what their opinions were. It's more showing and less telling. And some of the videos I've seen, some of the testimony has been really, really chilling. And so I think it's been more effective. I don't know how much it has broken through with the American people. I don't know how much it's going to impact the elections. I do think a big effect that it could have is rallying the Republican elites, the big shot Republicans to say, we can't run Donald Trump again. Because right. the picture that has come through here more so than ever before is that he is completely unhinged. He is a madman and he should be in no position of power. He shouldn't even be a dog catcher, let alone president of the United States. He should be in the leg iron, if you ask me. But, right. Well, um, exactly. Yeah. You know. I've been doing this for 30 years. It's like the problem with congressional hearings in general is that the Congress people forget what the point of the hearing is. They need their time. They want to give their opening statements. They want to ask their questions, even if they're repetitive. You know, they're just mostly about themselves. And in this case, they've done some things that are totally sensible, but also for Democratic Congress people are unheard of, like where they've been like, we don't need to give an opening statement. Exactly. We don't need to be in every hearing. Let somebody drive the car at every hearing. 
And then the thing's been obviously constructed like a prosecution and like a television show. There's a bunch of TV professionals who've been working on this and they've made it like a premium cable series. And that Liz Cheney thing is a good example of it. They've done like a little cliffhanger at the end of every hearing. That's what she said at the end of the last hearing. They like finally woke up and went, oh yeah, this is storytelling. If we're going to keep people's attention and make our point, we got to tell this like a story. I totally agree with that. And I was going to mention that at the top, but I didn't want to be like a congressperson and talk to you. <laughs> um, but it has been compelling. We're both people in the media. And when you're doing a convention or when you're doing a TV show like The Circus, it's good to like sort of have different content that you're throwing at people. So when you have Liz Cheney talking, then you have a video from a deposition. Then you have video from the day of, of police officers on the scene are saying, and then you have people testifying in person, it sort of satisfies the like ADD, ADHD of the modern information consumer. And I would say it has exceeded my expectations. And I do believe that because of the way that they've handled it, that they have been able probably to unearth more material and root out more witnesses than if they had conducted this the way they had some of the earlier impeachment hearings. The left will get mad at me and will get mad at you if you agree with me about this. The reality is she's the ultimate gift for them because she's not just a Republican, she's a Cheney and they were skeptical. And then she turned out to be more hardcore about like getting charges against Trump than anybody else on the committee. And they learned something else, Liz, which I know you know, which is like, it just is the case. You can talk about what should be versus, you know, I'm focused on what is. What is, is that the press treats stories differently when they have at least some element of bipartisanship to them. The press has been on the side of the committee. I think rightly so. I think Donald Trump's committed crimes and should never be president again. It's like the worst things ever happened in American history. But it is the case that what they discovered was how useful she was. She gets a hearing on television in a way that Adam Schiff, as you just pointed out, like people go, oh, partisan Democrat, Adam Schiff, who cares about him? Jamie Raskin, they're smart. Not that they're not smart guys, but the press immediately recoils and goes, okay, just Democrats going after Donald Trump again. And when they hear Liz Cheney, they treat it differently. And I think Democrats woke up to that and went, oh, she's on our side and she's a really useful tool in terms of getting this work done. No, I agree. And I'm I'm not completely surprised because there is a thing to the zeal of the converted. And I've seen this certainly with my friends who had been Republicans. And when they turned against Trump and modern Trumpism, they're like more hardcore than I am. So I'm not completely surprised that Cheney has been that way, but I have been very impressed with her. And a year ago, I would have you know, made like a vomit motion if you'd asked me about Liz Cheney. I think Benny Thompson has been good. He's got sort of that old country lawyer thing to him that I like. But there's no doubt that when you are going up and making an argument against a Republican president, former Republican president, that having Republicans do it is more effective than having a partisan Democrat do it. Yes. And I, I'm not in any way demeaning Benny Thompson. I think he's a fine chairman of the committee. He's doing a good job. And again, I will say Democrats on the committee know how powerful, how important Liz Cheney's been to their cause. So you just made a really good point, though, about the power of Republicans talking about Donald Trump. The thing that blew people's minds was all of these former Trump administration officials, all Republicans, all people who worked for Donald Trump loyally for a long time, including Pat Cipollone, who finally decided to give an interview, all of them giving testimony about what they've now known as the unhinged meeting, December 18th, 2020, in the Oval Office, in which you have the genuine nutcases, a high end of the MAGA movement, your Sidney Powell's and your Rudy Giuliani's and your Mike Flynn's all in there late at night trying to convince Donald Trump 
to like seize ballot boxes. Let's play this little bit of sound here. I want to play Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, and Derek Lyons, three lawyers in Trump's world, all Republicans, all commenting, telling the story of the unhinged hearing. Let's play that. I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the Oval Office. And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world and I speak, who, was, who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the Internet. I mean, at times there were people shouting at each other, hurling insults at each other. Um, it wasn't just sort of people sitting around on the couch like chit-chatting. I mean, you got people walk in. It was late at night. It had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. The description of this, of this meeting was insane. You've been in a bunch of nutty meetings. You know how intense things get in political campaigns and in White Houses. I've never heard anything like all of these crazy people screaming at each other at the top of their lungs and talking about things like, you know, seizing ballot boxes. And then Donald Trump goes out and sends that tweet and we're off to the races. Yeah. And I can we cuss? Can we cuss on this? Oh, yeah. Oh, please. No. Yes. Oh, you must. Not I only mean, can you cuss, you must oh, cuss. Because yeah. I have been in some bat shit behind the scenes meetings. I've worked in upper Manhattan and you can only imagine some of the shit I've seen yeah. where 911 has had to be called. But that sounded like it was a mix of the Star Wars bar scene, Dr. Strangelove and Veep. And you can't even imagine that this is real. This is happening in the White House. These people are hatching these completely cockamamie schemes that you almost have to laugh about. You would laugh about if it weren't something so serious, if someone had just p- produced that scene for a movie, for a TV show, people would have said, no, that's not realistic. That's not realistic. Right. But it really is this cast of just lunatic characters that should not be allowed within a thousand yards of the White House. The committee is very focused also. like Their attitude isn't, hey, we have to convert 30% of the Republican Party, if you think the 2022 and 2024 are very important elections for the future of democracy, they're like really focused on trying to like move the needle by like two or 3%, you know, just peel off enough Republican support that in close races, they're focused on that. They're not focused on trying to change the hearts and minds of the MAGA faithful. They're just trying to find those Republicans you talked about before, the ones who are always uneasy with Trump. And now like, can you tip them over and make them be like, okay, too much. Yes. And this is where I think it can come into play in 2022, if Democrats are smart, is to make the connection between what these people did in 2020, how they tried to overturn the election, and draw a direct line between that and a lot of the candidates running in 2022. Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, Carrie Lake in Arizona, they're all running for governor. Rebecca Cleefish in Wisconsin, they're all election deniers. They are all the people who will, who can help have the power to invalidate the 2024 election if they so please. And so we need to draw a direct line between what was done then, what could be done in 2024 if we elect some of these extreme gubernatorial candidates and, you know, secretary of state candidates to office, because that's the ballgame there. Doug Mastriano, if he becomes governor, that could be the ballgame because 
this is a guy who wanted to throw out the 2020 results. He went to the Capitol on the 6th. He bust yeah. people there. And same with these other gubernatorial candidates that I mentioned. That's where I really see the electoral impact. And I imagine that you will see some of these 22 campaigns using these hearings for advertising in that sense. Yeah. I want to play one more piece of sound before we leave the 1-6 committee, because this is someone who we might get to hear from or might not get to hear from. We'll see. Steve Bannon is now supposedly offering to testify, but he has very specific terms and conditions. It's not usually how it works, um, yeah. where the witnesses get to decide the terms under which they testify. But he's always a man with a high degree of self-regard and brio and confidence. So here's Steve Bannon on his War Room podcast last week talking about testifying, not testifying, and it's sounding incredibly confident for a man who's watching happen what has been happening. Here's what I've been telling folks. Pray for our enemies. Okay, pray for because we're going medieval on these people. We're going to savage our enemies. So pray for them. And we'll see about this committee, what happens this afternoon. But hey, my offers out there. Here's what I need. Give me a date, a time, a room number, a microphone and a holy Bible that I can take the oath on. Boom. Deliver that. And we'll see how good you are. Little Jamie Raskin and Liz Cheney and all of it. Serve it up. Okay. so again, communications strategist par excellence, Liz Smith. Is Steve Bannon a genius or a lunatic or both? I'm going to go with both, but not in a good way. Yeah. Um, I would also say a megalomaniac. I throw For that sure. in there. Yeah, yeah I, didn't like, put the, I didn't put that one in because I thought that was obvious. I mean, he has higher self-regard than Michael Jordan, who at least deserves to have that level of self-regard. Listen to his language. I mean, that sounds like someone who is clearly detached from reality, has way too much self-importance, probably doesn't look in the mirror enough. Um, mm-hmm. And what is genius about it, what's smart about it, and I don't think he'll succeed with this, is he's clearly trying to get a public hearing and go in front of Congress. And he knows that it would get probably monster ratings and that he would be able to say a lot of gonzo shit that appeals to his cultist followers that sort of lights up the worst elements of the white nationalist, proud boy, whatever. And he could use coded language. Mm-hmm. And my view on why he wants to do that is to gin something up, use it as a platform for him to spread hateful things, to spread lies, maybe to convert more people to what he's trying to do. So it's a brilliant play on his part in that way, but it's extremely dangerous. And I think that it would be obviously wrongheaded to give him that sort of platform. This podcast will appear the episode one, part one of the podcast will appear on, on the day that your book, Any Given Tuesday, which we're about to start talking about, Any Given Tuesday, a political love story comes out. And that's also two days before what is, as of now, the last scheduled 1-6 committee hearing. They're going prime time on Thursday. They have been taking advice from smart people. I agree with you. I don't know what impact it'll have in the end, but I think it's broken through. It's like, I hear people, I'm out of Maine right now. Even people who aren't watching the hearings are hearing about the hearings. That's part of their storytelling strategy has been to break through in that way. I think that's been smart. There's more reverb in the culture than there was for either of the first two impeachment hearings. There's no doubt about that. What the impact of that is, I don't know. What would you say to them about what do you need to do now if this is going to be the last time you're going to make a big public case here on television? These are a few of the things you've got to get done here. This is what you should focus on. This is what should be the metrics of success. This is the jugular you should be grabbing for, so to speak. What I would go for is, uh, did you ever watch Game of Thrones? Oh, yeah, sure. Everybody watched so, Game of Thrones. I may, know, I, may, I, may, I may be out of it, Liz, but I'm not so out of it that I'd be like, oh, Game of Thrones, what's that? Well, I don't know. You're, aren't you a baby boomer? 
That was oh a joke. my god, you're so mean. Oh my god, so I know, mean. I know. I'm so, so mean. mean. I'm so mean. So mean. You no. just did that just to just to be mean to me. Okay, go no, ahead. Go on. No, no, my favorite Gen Xers. So you know that scene where Daenerys just goes like full on, gets the dragons and she's burning. She's burning everything. She burns, burns everything. everything down. Burns it all down. Right. So it's. I think it's got to be something like that. And they've been building up, building up, building up, and now I think my expectation is that there's going to be something very directly tying Donald Trump to all of this, whether it's a recording of him, video, something that is beyond a smoking gun. I got to tell you, when I watched the first hearing, I thought it was pretty good. My view was that they should have led maybe with more direct evidence connecting Trump to this. But now I sort of see what they're doing, which is that it's almost scripted like a season of Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. where it builds. You've got a compelling introduction, but each episode draws you in more and more. And I think that this is the one... This is going to be the climax, and I expect to see some direct evidence, some real criminal activity from him that will break through. My advice to them would be you got to have something that brings it directly back to the Oval. Right, and your advice would also be to, to shift from Game of Thrones to my current televisual obsession, which is a show called The Bear. Oh my uh, God, I saw you tweeting best, about that. I need to watch it. You the best fucking show in the history of the world. And they just got renewed for a second season. Thank God, you guys. It's just, it's, if, if I would have burned FX to the ground if they hadn't renewed for The Bear. <laughs> but I will say the theme of that show is let it rip. And I think yeah. that's the other thing you're kind of saying is like, don't leave any clubs in the bag. Don't leave any gas in the tank. It's all on the line. Yeah, but you got to think that they're tapes, right? You got to think that there's something. You know, it's politics. Everyone tapes everyone at some point. I always assume when I'm in the room that someone's taping something, either for the feds or for their own files. Just so you know, right now, Liz, we're taping this, just so you're just, I don't want to be clear. (laughs) I know, and thank you for alerting me to that um, beforehand. (laughs) That's what my hunch tells me. I hope I'm not overselling it. I don't want to disappoint your listeners, but um, I think it is going to be something that direct. I got to say, those guys have been very thoughtful about what they've done so far. Every single hearing's had something that has been like, whoa, fuck. And it's hard to believe they don't have something else. We'll see what, was, what well, it is. And to you, sorry to take over and ask you questions, yeah. but what to you was the most compelling part of it? I thought some of the stuff, I mean, everything has been compelling in different ways, but the one that hit me hardest in some ways was listening to the various election workers who'd been... Yeah. Um, who'd been harassed and intimidated. It felt very human to me to hear from these people who were just like, I'm just there to try to help democracy work. And then they were getting doxxed and chased and threatened. And I mean, you know, know, we both know what it's like to have a mob after you at some point. But Mm -hmm. like these were people who had not signed up for that particular entertainment. I felt for them, you know, and we hadn't heard their voices really ever before. And it's not like an inside baseball thing. But I do think for some normal human beings in America watching, they'd be like, fuck, man. These people really are paid an incredible price that we had never grappled with before. I totally agree. But, you know, I guess I'm sort of a basic bitch here. I think that the Cassie Hutchins. Oh, well, yes, sure. That, But also, so what she said about that, but there was also this video from that day. I think it was from the radio of police where they're pointing out that guy in the tree has an AR-15. That has that. It gave me goosebumps because there's something about reading about something in a newspaper versus actually seeing it on TV. And you see these guys up there 
in the trees with the AR-15s and you're like, holy shit, this is really bad. And I think they've done a really effective job of making it seem like it wasn't just a bunch of ragtag, lonely, incel guys going in to get selfies. There's some dangerous people involved here and that a lot of people's well-being was at stake. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of Liz Smith on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Okay, so we're going to shift gears now and start to talk a nice long discussion of this book, which I say congratulations to you before for writing the book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story by Liz Smith. It's out today. Everyone who has any interest in politics whatsoever is obviously going to read it already. They don't need a sales pitch from me. But even if, you, if you're not an insider, you want to read this book because it turns out that, that Liz Smith, all of the personality that you have in life and as a professional all comes through on the page. Well, you know, it's funny. I never thought I was going to write a book, but when I got to writing the proposal, I wrote my first draft of the proposal and my agent, Sloan Harris with ICM, calls me and was like, hmm, Liz, this just, this isn't, this isn't working for me. And I was like, why? He's like, I don't know. You're like writing more like Henry James and fucking Liz Smith. And I look at it and it's like, thus, this is how it is. And so what I did was I just went and I rewrote it as in how I would talk and how I would tell friends at a bar. And everyone always says that about writing, but it's hard the first time you ever write a book. And my experience is never writing stuff in my voice. It's writing stuff in Pete Buttigieg's voice or... Terry McAuliffe's voice, Martin O'Malley's voice, whatever it is. So I had never written in my voice before. And usually my voice is not the voice of one that you read in a press release. You're from New York. You go to Dartmouth, volunteer on the Edwards campaign. This will date you a little bit in 2004, not the 2008 Edwards campaign, the one. 2004, uh, yeah. It's an important distinction because in 2004, John Edwards was somewhat likable in 2008, not so much. And then you're off to the races, right? You jump in at a very young age. You were working for a series of people, Claire McCaskill and Terry McAuliffe and John Corzine and Ted Strickland, all these big state politicians. And here's my question, given how fast your rise was. First of all, they're all losing the races that you're involved in. And Tom Daschle. I did Tom Daschle as well. Add in that loser too. But he's not a loser. He lost the election. You did not have a great win-loss record. But but I want it to- It turned. It turned at some point. I yes. know it did. Well, the Obama re-election campaign is a good way to turn your fortunes around. You stick with Barack Obama. But let me go back to the first thing. So you come flying out of Dartmouth into all of these jobs. You go from job to job to job, high profile within our world. It leads back to the question, which is, any given Tuesday, political love story. What do you love about politics? What was it that sent you out of Dartmouth with that degree of like, I'm in. This is what I want to be doing. And I am going to do it balls to the wall, pedal to the metal, the way you did right out of college without very much hesitation or uncertainty. There was some love thing going on there. What was that? Yeah. So I grew up in a family where both of my parents were very politically engaged. My mom was hardcore Democrat. My dad was, you know, a quintessential swing voter. He voted for Reagan two times, then Clinton two times, then Bush, then Kerry. So, you know, he flip every election. But growing up, they would take me to political events. They were big Bill Bradley supporters, all of that. But when I really fell in love was, I think I was nine or 
10 years old when the documentary, The War Room came out and I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do for a living. Usually when you've seen movies about politics or documentaries about politics, they're all focused on the politician. This one, it was the first time where the politician is like a supporting actor. I saw just sort of the grit, the passion, the adrenaline, the love of the game, but more importantly, the love of what they were doing and the importance of they were doing of people like James Carville and George Stephanopoulos. And so that was really what sort of first planted in my mind, I really want to do politics. But my parents had instilled in me that politics wasn't just a game. It is something that impacts everyone's lives. It touches everyone's lives, whether you like it or not. So I give them a lot of credit for why I decided to get involved. And it's one of the reasons why I chose Dartmouth, because Mm -hmm. it's home of first of the nation primary. And at Dartmouth, I was the president of the Young Democrats. Most girls go to Dartmouth, join a sorority. And don't get me wrong, I was out every Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday night playing beer pong. But my sorority was Young Democrats. And I started a student group for John Edwards. I just love politics because to be so young that you're 19, you're 20, you're 21, you're traveling the country for a presidential candidate, knocking on doors, and you're Maybe you're just getting them a vote here or there, but you're part of something big. You're part of something important. You're part of something heady. You're part of something that could change people's lives. And I looked around at my friends in college who, God bless them, were being interns at white shoe law firms or investment banks. And I don't think that they had that sort of feeling about their job. And I knew that at least the candidates, the things I was going out for, that they could help maybe end the war in Iraq or get us better health care and really do the things that change people's lives. I'll never cast any doubt or aspersions on someone's idealism about public policy and helping the country because I know that you're sincere about all that. But also it's just the case that like everything I know about you, you're an adrenaline junkie. You're very competitive. You're like, there's all these other elements to this that are also true, which is like a lot of it was about fighting and winning. You say throughout the book that you like a good scrap. You like to be in the mud. You don't like to be in the mud with pigs, but you're not afraid to get dirty. There's a a kind of a personality type and certainly true of James and and George and all the people in the war room that were like, yeah, we want to help the country. That's why we're doing this. We could make more money doing something else. But there's also a, a temperamental quality of scrappers, fighters, bruisers, and people who like to fight and and be able to see who wins and loses on the scoreboard on election night. It's not like there's any lack of clarity about who's won this fight about, did you win or did you lose? No, there's a winner, there's a loser. You're on one team or the other. And I think that obviously fits your personality. And that's completely true. And I didn't mean to sort of gloss over that at age nine, right? That's not exactly how I was thinking. I don't think I was an adrenaline junkie quite yet. Of course, I am a competitive motherfucker. Like I will spend all night at the blackjack table, all night playing chess. I grew up playing chess. I played sports. I was a runner. I had a twin brother. I think what anyone who has a twin can tell you that it really gives you a, a very competitive side to you because you're always competing against each other and everyone's sort of comparing you to each other. So I do have that competitive gene and I do have that adrenaline gene where I like crises. I like running into metaphorical burning buildings. I like the roller coaster of it because 
it makes life a lot more interesting. And it just so happens that these two things that two parts of my personality, two things I care about sort of merge into one with campaigns. So, okay. There are interesting stories in this book about Claire McCaskill, about Terry McAuliffe, about John Corsian, Strickland, all those people. We're not going to talk about any of them because that would be like a seven hour podcast. Go buy the book. Everyone should buy the book. The Barack Obama campaign also, uh, Barack Obama re-election campaign, where, where Liz meets David Axelrod and who takes her under his wing to some extent. These are all interesting stories. But I want to play a little piece of sound right now as a way of getting into a different kind of crisis, a crisis that involved you directly, Liz, and that you spend a decent amount of time on in the book. So you eventually come to New York, come back to New York, where you grew up, and in 2013, you work on Elliot Spitzer's campaign for Comptroller. Elliot Spitzer, former governor of New York, who basically got hounded out of politics because of a prostitution scandal. He runs for Comptroller. He loses in the Democratic primary. You then go and work for Bill de Blasio, who that same year in 2013 is running for mayor. And after de Blasio wins, but before he takes office, there's a sort of tabloid frenzy around the fact that you had started a personal relationship, a romantic relationship with Spitzer. And when that comes to light, de Blasio kind of unbelievably fires you. And so you're now out of a job. He now becomes the new mayor of New York City in January of 2014. And now this is the sound I want to get to here. Shortly thereafter, uh, you are on television. We'll talk more about the whole scandal in a second. But here, you're on television on New York One, local television, and you're you know, doing your pundit, doing some punditry here. And you are asked to comment about your former boss, who had just fired you, Bill de Blasio, and how he handled his first snowstorm as mayor of New York City. Always a big challenge for every new mayor. Let's hear what you had to say. I gave him a C because I think it was a very challenging week. Um, But just to the idea of this honeymoon, I think anyone who thought that the New York Post was going to give Bill de Blasio a honeymoon is seriously deranged. And I think that the New York media in general is not inclined to give politicians honeymoons. Yeah, I mean, that is certainly true. Liz, what you said there, New York media is not inclined to give politicians and certainly not new mayors of of the city honeymoons. But it's also the case that you were not especially inclined to give a honeymoon to Bill de Blasio. And, you know, you brought the hammer down there. So look, people know you got involved with Elliot Spitzer. Mm -hmm. It was a tabloid scandal. People made a lot out of it. De Blasio eventually parted ways with you in a very unceremonious way that's described in the book. No love lost between the two of you. Uh, you can tell the story any way you want, but what I really want to hear from you, because I think it's it, there's really is an interesting, important thing in this beyond the details aren't that lurid, they, but they certainly, whenever you end up a, as a target of a tabloid story, everything seems more lurid than it really is. But like, what did you learn from that? It's got to be the worst experience of your life at the intersection of media and politics. I think I know what you learned from it just reading the book, but I'm curious what you think as you think back on it now with a decade behind you. You were young, you know, it it became a national story. You know, you'd have a fast rise in politics. I don't know. It could have been a very scarring experience. So again, I I give you the floor now to kind of tell whatever parts of that story you want, but also kind of try to get to what do you think you learned from it on the backside of it? Yeah. um, And it could have been. And a lot of people who go through those sorts of experience leave the business because they're like, God damn, you know, this is awful or I'm never going to get hired again. Things I learned. I talk about this in my book, but when I sat down with Bill de Blasio, I have never before then, since then, had an interview with someone where I had 
less faith in them to do the duties of their job, less faith in their leadership skills. And behind the scenes of the campaign, I saw him act in ways that I thought were, I describe him as childish, but he would berate and bully staffers for the smallest things like typos and briefings, whether his coffee was hot enough or not. I remember one time I was speaking with a staffer and, you know, we were 10 feet from de Blasio and de Blasio came over and he's six, six and puts his arm around us. And is like, Liz, you get a pass. Cause it's only your second day. You do not. And starts berating the staffer. It's like, you know what you're doing right now? You're speaking within my earshot. And you know what? I have very heavy things on my mind. I am going to be mayor in 30 days. And logistics, your issues with logistics, yeah. I don't need to hear them. Right. And and it's a theme. And, you know, we'll get to some of this with some other people, I suspect. Right. But I knew that this was not a good guy and that this right. was not someone who was going to be a great executive because like, how are you going to be dealing with a nine 11 if you can't deal with someone speaking 10 feet away and you say that they're in your earshot? What I should have learned more of is when those alarm bells go off, right. don't go and work for someone like that. Right. But I did it because you know, next to White House press secretary, like New York City press secretary is a pretty big job. And I wanted Right, that. right, right. And yeah, and so I put my ambition first, even though behind closed doors to my family and friends, I would say, this guy's a clown. Right. You don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But one of the lessons you learned was don't work for candidates who you don't fundamentally respect. Right. And, and that's one, that's a good lesson. So that's one. And then the other thing is... Then when everything came down, Elliot and I had been going out and we had sort of been building up, making our relationship, you know, introducing him to my parents, my family, him introducing me to his family, doing right. the sort of normal things you do in a relationship. It was sort of a plan that then, of course, we would not announce our relationship, but have it at some point be public, be public yeah. right? We didn't have that opportunity. It turned out right. that a New York Post photographer for days had been in a car across from my Soho apartment, just sn waiting and snapping photos of Elliot leaving my apartment, me leaving my apartment. Right. Stakeout. A stakeout. So you got staked out. A, yep. So I was staked out and I got word of this about, I think it was eight days before de Blasio swearing in. It was the first time where I wasn't handling crisis for someone else, where I was the crisis. And I thought that, well, because I'd helped all sorts of politicians with crises in the past, you know, right. DUIs, illegitimate children, you know, <laughs> extramarital affairs, whatever you want to, yeah. whatever it is, handled it. All the seven deadly sins, <laughs> right. basically. Every, Liz, if you violate any of the Ten Commandments, or even more particularly, if you've committed any of the seven deadly sins, Liz Smith is exactly drug use. And when you do what I do, it's a sort of a no judgment zone. It's just you just listen to people and try to help them get through stuff. Right. But yeah. I thought that, OK, well, I can handle this myself. 
And I remember getting calls from reporters, from people at different firms, a couple ex-boyfriends being like, you need help doing this. And I was so mortified at being out there that it was like, I almost didn't want to talk to anyone else. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to handle it myself. And what I learned is that you can be the best maybe at what you do or really good at what you do, but you can't handle your own crises. You really can't handle your own PR and that it is an extreme conflict of interest. I don't know whether it was hubris or embarrassment, you know, because it's just embarrassing then to like talk to people about, geez, I'm on the wood of the post. Like you're like in a bunker, you know? Sure. That I saw the storyline go away from me. The storyline that I would usually control go away from me. And then I'm reading stories about me in the press, about how de Blasio's interviewing other people for my position, even as they're telling me to keep my head up. And so another lesson I learned is that you've got to let go of control sometimes. You can't handle your own crises all the time. And it's good to have some humility and put some trust in other people to do things for you. That's the thing that I really came through. You wrote about in the book in a couple of different places, this notion of, at one point you say, my overconfidence in my abilities led me to make dumb decisions while facing crises of my own. My go-to attitude was I alone can fix it, which of course is famously from a Donald Trump thing, which I know you said with an arched eyebrow as you wrote that. Number one, I think, it's fair to say that in general, that phrase, a lawyer who represents himself as a fool for a client, that's the same thing, right? It's particularly true in your business though, right? I mean, one of the things that I most have found over 30 years of writing about politics and recovering politics and talking to politicians is that some of them still don't understand something very basic, which is that they are different than their public Mm -hmm. image. Their public image is a thing that exists apart from them. The closer your public image is to the reality, the authentic reality of you, the better, because then you're kind of, you're lined up, you're stacked up consistently. But people are going to believe things about you that you're not going to see in yourself. And people are going to believe things about you that are good that you don't see in yourself and bad, but that your public image is almost like a separate entity that exists. And of course, you can't possibly be the person giving advice to your own public image because you find it hard to separate them anyway. But like reading the story, you're kind of like, who is this person they're writing about? You know, you have that moment, that out-of-body moment, like, I don't know that person. That person's being written about, bears no relationship to me. And politicians often make the mistake where you have to say to them, it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. There's a thing out there that exists that you have to be in control of all the time. And for that, you need help. I think you just generally need help in life, but you certainly it's need so help with true. that. true. And it brings to mind something Pete once said to me. I think it was the end of 2019, early 2020. Remember when he surged to the top of the polls, in Iowa and New Hampshire. I definitely And do. I remember a reporter with one of the networks calling us and being like, yo guys, I have never seen as much oppo being shopped around about a candidate as is being shopped around about Pete right, right now. And what was really interesting and really helpful behind the scenes was that I could talk to Pete I could talk to Chaston and have honest conversations with them one-on-one about what it was like and how it feels in that moment and the coping mechanisms you should have, attitudes you should take so that you don't drive yourself crazy. And number one is don't read your clips. Don't read the clips, especially if you're running for president Mm. or Hmm. anything like that. Good, good luck well, with good luck with that. You know good what? luck. I, 
like you can give that advice to you give that advice to your candidates I, and they I, I always do say, it anyway. Pete was he was actually pretty good about he was never what I would right. call a pencil fucker with clips. He wouldn't go through and be like, oh God, how'd they write this? He's a big <laughs> picture guy. You know, you spend time with him. He's yeah, a yeah, calm, yeah, yeah. serene dude. Yeah, we yeah, will, yeah, we yeah. We'll talk about will. we, we talk about Pete more later, but yes. Yeah. Was that at some point, Liz, I realized the person that they're attacking on Twitter. The person that they're saying is a CIA agent, that I'm some neolib shill, this person isn't me. So let them attack that person and let me be me. And once I was able to make that separation, it was just like water off a duck, you know? I will not take this posture, but I would say others might say that there are two other important lessons that could be learned from this. One would be don't date Elliot Spitzer, and the other would be don't work for Bill de Blasio. Now, I'm not saying you should believe that, and I'm not saying I believe that, but I think there would have been a lot of people from the outside, and I'm being serious in a way, who I know you know this because your family was like this. You know, at one point you write something like, the last thing you ever want to have to tell your father or your brother is the words, I'm in love with Elliot Spitzer. You know, and it's interesting because you really were kind of caught up with two guys, and they hated each other on top of everything else. I mean, just the idea that you could work for those two guys in the same time or in close proximity is also kind of amazing. De Blasio had tried, and I write about this in my book. It hasn't been revealed publicly before, but de Blasio had tried to get Elliot to support him in his mayoral race, had tried to get his money. Well, because he liked him? Because he liked him or because he thought he could use him? doesn't matter. That's like in politics. Well, but but, he didn't, I don't think he had some visceral hate for Elliot Spitzer. Okay. Elliot hated uh, Bill. Elliot, I think, hated Bill. That's what you write in the book. Oh, you're very, you're very oh, clear via about it in the me, book. because of what Bill did to me. I think. Oh, oh, I wasn't. No, that no, wasn't no, a pre-existing no, no. thing. It was really just because of the way that De Blasio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, he I thought De Blasio okay. was an intellectual lightweight and all of that, but the personal stuff is harder to talk about because when you fall in yeah. love with someone, you fall in love with someone, and hopefully, I make better love choices going forward. And hopefully no one yeah. even knows about my love life choices going forward. But no matter who it was that I was dating, I don't think it was right for Bill de Blasio. Yeah. It's not like my skills evaporated overnight. It's no. it's not like I commit, committed some fireable offense. And you know, what's interesting is like 18 months after that, de Blasio fired another extremely talented woman who was working for him, Rachel Nordlinger, who's just like a mm-hmm. star. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, you know great. Rachel. We were at um, yep. Sylvia's together. And he sure. he fired her for the same reason, sure. because of who she was dating. And it's gross, and I'm not sure you could do that in a post-Me Too era, but there's also something that Bill de Blasio didn't realize he was doing when he fired me, which is he even before he took office, signaled to the New York tabloids and to the New York Post especially that they could steamroll him. That if they said, oh, give her the heave-ho de Blasio, right. then he would do it. And if if he had stood up and showed some strength in that moment, I think that would have given him a little more credibility with them to show that he had a backbone, but he didn't do that. The New York media market is very unique, but people need to know that they can smell blood in the water. And if they smell weakness, they will just come and just sure. bang on your head day after day after day. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more of Liz Smith on Hell and High Water.
And we are back for the final section of part one of this epic two-part episode with Liz Smith here on Hell and I Water. I want to be a thousand percent clear. I am not suggesting that there's any possible judge, no matter what better what anybody thought about your relationship with Elliot Spitzer. And a lot of people had a lot of thoughts, but that, oh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, no justification yeah. to fire you for oh, that. Sure. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to defend Bill de Blasio. I was just trying to say like, to people you write about in the book, people closest oh, yeah, to you had concerns. I got it, yeah. that's, that's kind of my point. And when I think about where you were at that moment, you know, you had been out of college less than a decade. You're barely 30, right? You've been in the middle of now on a, a big giant tabloid sex scandal yeah. sort of. And, um, it wasn't really a sex scandal, but it kind of that's how people thought about it. You know, when people are staking out your apartment, I know that's horrible. You know, they're trying to make it more lurid than it is. Anyway, all of that happens. And 2016 is coming and you go off and decide to work. You're going to be a senior person on a presidential campaign for the first time. And you go off to work for Martin O'Malley. We're going to do a brief little Martin O'Malley thing because we really want to get to some of the more important things. But I do think this, this race taught you some things. So Martin O'Malley announcing his bid for the presidency. Right here, this is May 30th, 2015, head into the 2016 race, former mayor of Baltimore, former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley. Here he comes. For the story of our country's best days is not found in a history book because this generation of Americans is about to write it. And that is why today, To you and to all who can hear my voice, I declare that I am a candidate for President of the United States, and I am running for you. Martin O'Malley, for a lot of people, was like a generational talent. People were like, Martin O'Malley's going to be president one day, right? I mean, that's what a lot of people said for a long time. In fact, to the point where, for anybody who is not aware of this, actually, well, I'm going to play a little sound of this too. Martin O'Malley was someone who was so, especially in that world, was so thought of as being such a fast rising star and also such a kind of consummate political player that he ends up being kind of the basis for a a now well-known character in the greatest television show ever made, The Wire, Tommy Carcetti. Let's play a little Tommy Carcetti here. We'll compare and contrast. Who's better, Martin O'Malley or Tommy Carcetti? Well, I am, God forgive me, a politician, (laughs) but I am also someone who ran for public office because I believe that there is a different way of governing, and I believe that in the end, we will be judged not by the efforts we make on behalf of those who vote for us or those who contribute to our campaigns or those who provide for our tax base. I believe that we will be judged by what we provide to the weakest and most vulnerable. That is the test. That is my test. Aiden Gillen playing Tommy Carcetti there. People remember him as Littlefinger. Littlefinger, I was about to say, it all comes it comes full circle. It, it all comes full circle. Everything comes back to Game of Thrones somehow. So I played those two because, man, Tommy Carcetti, that's a great, that's a nice little speech right there, right? How would you, What could you do with a candidate who could speak like that in an, an unscripted television show format? Like a candidate as good as Tommy Carcetti. That's the guy who's going to the White House, right? I was a big Carcetti fan. He had, he had yeah. his personal flaws, but sure. I was into him. He shook up the city council. Shook up the mayoralty. Yeah, the there's a lot of sensitivity around the wire in O'Malley world. Yeah. I know there is. I know there's a lot of sensitivity, and Comic Carcetti has some weaknesses and flaws also. But nonetheless, the thing about him, though, moments when he's shown as a politician, like that, that speech, powerful, right? The speech that he gives, he gives another speech in the show when he's talking about in a city council meeting where he gets rolling and you see what people th- see in him, right? And the reason I raise it is this. Uh, you played Martin O'Malley, and I haven't even let you speak about this yet. But did you like was did you see Martin as like this guy is the natural in the way that people looked at Bill Clinton and said that you know from the very beginning we're like that guy could go all the way. Did you see in him the kind of thing that eventually you saw in Pete at the at that moment? Did you look at him and think, man, this guy's really something, and he could he could be the nominee, he could be president. So 
he is a governor who achieved a lot. You know, go down the checklist of progressive priorities, you know, did them all Um, and did them before a lot of people did them. Marriage equality, gun control, right after Sandy Hook, raise the minimum wage, driver's license for undocumented immigrants, decriminalize marijuana. You get the point. He had a great resume, you know, mayor of Baltimore, governor of Maryland. He was also someone I was very closely like I was very personally friendly with. And when I'd been going through tough times with de Blasio, et cetera, he would always call me and sort of buck me up and be really supportive of me in a way that, you know, a lot of politicians aren't. And to me, the Martin O'Malley that I saw behind the scenes, that I saw off the record, was one of the most amazing guys. Like, smart, funny, witty, caring, warm, fatherly, you know, has this sort of Irish-ish charm to him, but is really warm and sentimental. But, but, and he had sort of the whole thing, right, that made him good on paper. You know, beautiful family. But he was one of those guys that once the TV camera turned on, it, it, like there, it's like a wall went up. And the wall was very hard to break down. And he and I would talk about, well, how did that wall even get built? And it turned out, you know, when he had been mayor of Baltimore, he had been a very brash, out there politician who would have no problem dropping F-bombs at press conferences, no problem going out there and like, threatening fistfights with bad people who are doing bad things, playing in, you know, cut off sleeve shirts for you concerts. And he had a group of consultants around him, like older white men who said, Martin, you know what? If you're going to be governor, you can't do this. You need to be more serious. You know, you need to be more gubernatorial. Right. And I feel like they beat the authenticity out of him Um, and they made it so that he became sort of just a cookie cutter sort of like imitation of a Kennedy and that's not him and I would always tell him let people see who you are behind the scenes but you can't deprogram years of that and it's something like that frustrates me sometimes about the political consulting industry is that these guys try to make everyone into this, you know, what they think of as a cookie cutter gubernatorial candidate or presidential candidate. And in the meantime, you lose all the character, all the authenticity, all the interesting things about them. Because sometimes even the flaws in these people make them beautiful and make them fascinating and make them interesting. And that's sort of my diagnosis of what happened with Martin O'Malley. But I love him. He has been a great friend to me. And, you know, I had so much loyalty toward him. I would go back and do it again in a heartbeat, knowing how it ended because he's a, he's a great guy. He's someone we should have in public office, but uh, I think he did get some really bad advice along the line. I mean, I, I can't tell you was like, I, I didn't know him that well, but I mean, I'd seen him around for years and, and knew him by reputation and covered him a little bit here and there. He had this reputation for being much more real 
Um, and, right. and I've seen him in some occasions be much more real. He turned into, you know, a Max Hedrum character in the, in the, in the campaign. And it was just the worst possible contrast in the world with Bernie Sanders. Who, oh my God. Whatever you right. think about the ideology of Bernie Sanders, the whole Bernie Sanders thing was like, I'm going to, I'm going to yell at you for an hour and a half from the stage. I'm going to have a dandruff on my shoulders. I'm going to give the same speech over and over again, because this is what I believe. And this is who I am. And even as you know, the kids younger than us, those other, other generations, those Gen Z kids and millennials were like, wow, this guy's honest and authentic. And the Republican side, they were saying the same thing about Trump. This guy speaks his mind. He's yeah, that's, he is who he is. Love him or hate him. And you know, you said, Martin O'Malley next to Bernie Sanders. A lot of Democrats were looking for an alternative in 2016. You know, that all the ones who flocked to Bernie Sanders. And and Martin looked like robotic tin man. Not the Martin O'Malley that people that we once knew. It was like, what happened to the Martin O'Malley that I had seen 10 years ago? And, and you know, and the first time I had met him, it was at a DGA event, Democratic Governors Association. They do annual events at the Derby in Louisville, you know, for donors. And I met him that night for the first time and he was just there, you know, drinking a beer. And I talked with him and my boyfriend at the time, Jeff Smith, who is a state senator, a Jewish guy representing a majority black district. And he and O'Malley just talked for an hour telling stories about being mayor, being state senator, St. Louis, Baltimore, and O'Malley's being so salty, so fun, but so insightful and smart. So I think you and I are on the same page that the thing that was great about him had been, unfortunately, beaten out of him before I even came along. And it's one thing I've learned is that, I don't know if you ever played an instrument. For instance, when I was a violinist, Early on, just had a really bad form with my bow. And I could still play great. You know, I was the head of my high school orchestra, all that. But I could never fix how I held my bow. It's same with chopsticks. Like, once I learned how to use them, I'm still bad with chopsticks. And it's, I think, the same with politicians, that at a certain point, these things get baked in and you can't fix them. Uh, But... It doesn't diminish the fact that he was a very accomplished governor, and yeah, yeah, more yeah. importantly, <laughs> like. But I, I know, and I'm, and 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 John, I'm like, I'm not trying to spin, but one of the I, most decent men, like I've, I've worked for behind the scenes, and and I I do love him, and I I don't want to discount him. I I feel like a little guilty, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm no one's you know, no one's trashing Martin O'Malley here. Yeah. Just sort of saying, like it was actually just. I mean, I think you know, in a different world. And a world that a lot of people in politics imagined could be the world. Like there was, there was a guy who was a comer and, and you know, you could have easily seen him. As I said, there was space in that race. But Martin O'Malley did not seize that space. And his campaign came to a pretty inglorious, if not ignominious, end in Iowa or after Iowa, right after the caucuses, where he did not perform particularly well. Uh, he's out of the race. And you, Liz, you're out of town. You at some point here in the early part of 2016, you didn't just get out of town. You got like way out of town, like fled the country, went to Uganda and said, fuck it, I'm going to go off and track gorillas. When was that? It was right after the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. So, you know, you go off to Uganda and do your gorilla tracking, something I've always wanted to do. And I, there's a delightful story in the book, very funny, where you're basically doing the one thing you're not supposed to do when you're tracking gorillas, which is make a lot of loud noises. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed that, that anecdote. And eventually, after a little bit of time away, you're back on the political grid by the time we get to the fall of 2016 and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are going at it. And, you know, one of the things I would say, if I recall it right, I remember having you on TV in that period was that you 
were not one of these Democrats who took the view that like beating Donald Trump was going to be a slam dunk and that it would be easy and that Hillary Clinton was going to glide to re-election. You had some degree of appreciation for what Trump uh, had done in kind of demolishing the Republican field in 2016. And, and you were wary, I wouldn't say respectful, but you were warily kind of aware, so to speak, of the fact that there was a certain power around Trump and that maybe he could be more of a problem in the general election than other people thought. And I think probably some of it came from watching Bernie that you kind of saw like where the fire was in the in the two parties that year, that this was like a year for not for Hillary's and not for Martin O'Malley's and not for Jeb Bush's, but for the Bernie Sanders's and Donald Trump's of the world who were, you know, more incendiary and were connecting at this more populist level with people. I don't know. It seemed to me like you had an appreciation for what was going on with Trump. Is that is that fair? You know what it's like? It's, um, you know, I'm a Bengals fan, obviously. I don't know how many times I can drop that in an interview, but. Uh, well, I've only had two up, so far. Yeah, I, I grew up in a Jets family. And, Ooh. you know, every my family always had season tickets. They At first they were like in the nosebleeds. We, we got to the like second level, you know, at some point. And Jets fans fucking hate the Patriots. They mm. fucking hate Tom Brady. Mm. But goddamn, Tom Brady is a great, great quarterback. And at some point, you have to divorce your personal feelings about the person, about what you think of their character, deflate gate, you know, and realize, okay, this person has got some sort of skill. Whether or not I, th- I approve of them or think they're, you know, morally superior, Superior, that, yeah. that they yep. they sort of get it, and Donald Trump, uh, as the candidate, was a guy who understood the media environment, understood yep. how to get clicks, understood how to get views, and understood that a presidential election and a lot of elections are are about more than 10 point policy plans, right? It's about, are you tapping into the zeitgeist? Are you speaking to what people are feeling? And he's like, he just captured that moment very well in a way Sanders tried to in the primary. Trump tapped into some really ugly stuff that he really, you know, sort of brought to the fore of American politics. But he got it, you know? And he also got the press, man. The press really... Because how is the press not going to cover it? We were all there for OJ. And like, we remember all of the helicopters above OJ, all the back then, you know, you, I don't even know what cable news you had, but they are all following the white Bronco, right? Because nothing's necessarily happening right now with the white Bronco, but we know OJ's in it, but something could happen. And Liz, can, I tell you, can, I, can I tell you this? This is the honest to God truth. Yeah. One of the most extraordinary, one of the moments of 2016, that that cycle that I will remember most, I'm only interrupting you because that's so right on point, was being at the Iowa State Fair in 2015 and being a Secretary Clinton that day, spending that day watching her at the fair, I think maybe shooting for the circus or, I don't know, I was just there doing Bloomberg stuff, I guess. And Trump helicoptered in. And when the helicopter came, everyone on the ground, the press, the Clinton campaign, everyone kind of looked up at the sky and went, oh, it's Trump. It was early. No one really thought Trump had a chance at that point, but there was something about like the spectacle of it. Here's this yeah. guy arriving at the Iowa State Fair in his personal helicopter that everybody who was there, including all these seasoned hard-bitten reporters, 
Everyone was suddenly looking up in the sky and kind of muttering under their breath, oh, it's Trump. Here comes Trump. And I was like, man, uh, it's just a, that thing happening here. It was, very, it was a very cinematic moment that kind of captured a certain kind of quality of like that Trump would have throughout the entire campaign. It's like he had this feral brilliance to him. And it's just something you can't deny. And the, some of the feral brilliance was tapping into the lowest common denominator of voters, but also the lowest common denominator in the media. And so, yeah, I watched him learn from it. Totally. All right, we have reached the end of part one of our special two-part episode with the one and only Liz Smith, author of the just-published memoir, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story, here on Hell and High Water. Part two of this two-part episode will be available tomorrow, dropping in the morning. And you'll get to hear Liz talking in great detail about her key, crucial, critical, essential, indispensable role in turning Pete Buttigieg from a name that no one had ever heard of into a name that everyone had heard of but still couldn't really pronounce and helping him become a surprisingly successful candidate for president in 2020. Even though he didn't get the nomination, he turned himself into a national figure in that campaign. Big props and ups due to Liz Smith. She had a huge, huge part in that. You'll also hear all about Liz's excruciating experience being part of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's kitchen cabinet at the peak, the height, really not the height, more like the nadir of the Me Too scandal that brought down Governor Cuomo when he faced charges of sexual harassment, eventually forced him to resign. That was last year. It seems like a million years ago. Trust me, you want to hear the inside story of what went down there, and you'll hear it tomorrow on Hell and High Water, part two with Liz Smith. See you then.